Hello and welcome to James Bond and Friends. Today is Friday, the 11th of February, and we're into quite a ways into the new year already, but we haven't really recorded an episode this year. So, Happy New Year, everybody, uh, somewhat belatedly. Um, I thought we would catch up on the news because some stuff has happened since No Time Today came out on Blu ray and DVD in the world of Bond. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to introduce everybody who's on this week. Uh, Sean, Calvin, Lisa, and Ben, would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Oh, I think this is my first time ever going first on one of these. Hello, <laughs> I'm Sean Longmore. I'm an artist and graphic designer. I sometimes do some James Bondy arty things. I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I make uh, silly review videos and the like, uh, covering all aspects of James Bond. I am Dr. Lisa Funnell. I'm a university professor, award-winning author and podcaster specializing in gender, in James Bond, and other action films. Hi, I'm Ben Williams, um, bottom of the pile in terms of usefulness. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, comfortably down here, right right on the bottom recording line. Um <laughs> I write for mi6hq.com and mi6confidential magazine. No, it's mi6hq.com and mi6confidential magazine. I said that right the first time. Okay. That's why I'm at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> it's been Who a long week. For? Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, I think we'll start in reverse order. Um, news that broke this week was that Amazon Prime Video, which is basically their TV production arm, have taken out a 10-year lease on Shepparton Studios. Um, and for those not familiar, Shepperton's like the baby brother to Pinewood. And Pinewood already has a 10-year exclusive lease agreement with Disney. So that potentially locks up like the majority of the film um, sound, sound, sound stage capacity in the UK. Um, and I know some people commented, well, it's Amazon. It's like, yeah, but Amazon Prime Video is a different department to Amazon Studios. And yep. uh, they probably don't even play nice. So. Mm. The odds of Bond getting access to UK studio space is getting more and more remote. Mm. Um, and I was thinking back to 1994 when Goldeneye was going to go into pre-production. And we've talked to quite a few people on that production and at Pinewood at the time. And the assumption from Eon was just like, they'd rock up and use Pinewood. <laughs> and Pinewood were like, uh, no, we're actually booked up, sorry. And so they had to go and build their own studio. And the same thing happened two years later for Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, wow. And the same thing happened for Casino Royale, um, where they had to go to Prague. So it's not the first time Bond's been homeless. Um, but it's Is looking Leavesden like... not available then? Well, yeah, but the f all of these spaces, because capacity is now going to be pretty limited. <clears throat> and that's one owned by Warner Brothers, right? Um, right. And Warner yeah. Brothers tying up with Discovery this week means that they're going to probably be fully booking that space for productions. Mm. Um, even if they were open to taking Bond's business, chances are the Bond team's going to be looking for a space within 12 months, and these things are probably booked two to three years out. Mm. Yeah, I think Leavesden's booked in 2023 for Mission Impossible 7. Mm. Or 8. Or whatever. <laughs> so um, how do we feel about Bond, maybe either build your own studio, which they've done a couple of times, or heading overseas. I don't know if I 
could tell you the difference just right. looking at them, which uh, which films were filmed at Pinewood Studios and which ones weren't. I know that there's a, a lot of heritage there and a lot of history. I mean, the, the you know the big sound stage is called the 007 stage for goodness' sake. So it seems like it's a perfectly you know um, apt partnership. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't suppose it matters all that much to me as a, as just a viewer. Um, I remember seeing some, was it in, I think it probably was Goldeneye where I saw some like interview where Pierce Brosnan was kind of talking about the advantage of not shooting at Pinewood Studios being that as a new Bond, it was kind of nice to not have the, the ghosts of Sean and Roger kind of, uh, behind him sort of thinking about, you know, well, Goldfinger lit- lit- Avenue and all that literally kind of Literally ghosts now. He went dark. Okay. <laughs> and, and who knows, maybe for the next new Bond that might be, you know, equally as uh, appealing. I don't know. But certain, certainly as a viewer, I don't know if I could tell you much of a difference, really. Calvin, do you think they'll... Change the street names. Oh, <laughs> maybe. You know, like it's a bit, it'll be a bit weird, won't it? If they can't shoot at Pinewood, you know, right. for however long going forward, and you do have the 007 stage, you do have Goldfinger right. Avenue and it'll the, be the rest of cul de sac. Iron Man stage. <laughs> Wait, did you say that both Goldeneye and Casino Royale were not shot at Pinewood? Well, no. Um, Goldeneye, they had to go and make their own studio from scratch. Same with Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Casino Royale, they just went over to Prague and used the sound stages in Prague. So they did, Lisa, they did shoot in the underwater tank at Pinewood uh, for the sinking house. Uh, yeah. But, but that, that is, just to put that into perspective, it was a very small part yeah. of Pinewood and is kind of sort of at the at the back of the back lot, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I so- think that that sort of goes into, but it goes to the point that Calvin made that when we think about the first outing for the new James Bond, these new eras, they really didn't take place in Pinewood. And so right. I really liked Goldeneye and I really liked Casino Royale. And I thought that they offered fresh new takes and maybe stepping away from some of that past tradition could really be valuable and useful moving forward. So I don't see this as a deal breaker. It doesn't necessarily concern me, but I love the idea that, you know, Casino Royale, it meant that they had to go elsewhere. And I loved the visuals that you got by by shooting in a different location. So I don't know, maybe it just opens up new opportunities for creative revisioning. Mm. So the, I, the, other two, the other two that were overseas were obviously Moonraker because they went to France for tax reasons and um, licensed to kill because they thought they could get more for their money going to Mexico. And to your point, yeah. the visual style of those movies is different, but would the average viewer knew they were different to the other ones where they were shot? I, I don't. License to kill mm. is probably the most outlayer of those right. group. But the other one I was thinking about was Diamonds Are Forever, where they split the crews between the US and the UK. So they had basically every job was split into two and they had two people, one in the US, one in the UK for the split production. I I, I just think the aesthetic of that film looks a bit cheap compared to mm-hmm. and I think not it's not to do with the money. I think it's just to do with the trade the the trades and the crafts and everything not being consistent. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I don't know. I mean this could really affect the visual style 
But then as we head into less, less practical sets, more green screen, I mean, we're going to have a series of visual effects features in the magazine this year, and you'd be shocked to find out how many things didn't actually exist in No Time to Die. Yeah. Um, is this becoming less of an issue when it's just like, have you got a big room with a green screen? Great. <laughs> becomes a soundstage now. Yeah. Yeah, well, they've also got that um, really cool background technology. It's not like it's like a... Um, oh, it's an XI LED wall tech that they do. Yeah, it's fucking amazing um, to see them do it. And then, you, you know, the camera tracks, so the background tracks to the camera in perspective, which is really a cool thing. Is, um, it, is this the one they've been using on Star Wars? Yeah, the Mandalorian yeah, uses yeah. it. Yeah, so they've been using it on the Mandalorian, and you can um, – so even on that, there's that wonderful shot that's like um, in uh, episode five, I think it is, where it's a, a one long take of Mando coming up in the lift, Dan coming up in the lift. I don't want to go off topic. I'm sorry, but it's just – that is all done, and it's not, there's no cut in that at all. It's no – it's one seamless shot, but the backgrounds are able to change to give it the effect that it is – um, in a much larger environment, which is really, uh, which is really cool. Um, my take on this very quickly is that I think the opportunity to make your own studio would be amazing. Um, and then you could kind of just have like the dedicated James Bond studio and all of the things that they often kind of nipped around Pinewood for anyway, things like, um, the forest thing, can't remember the name of it. Black Forest, I don't want to say Black Forest, not Black Forest. You know what I'm trying to say. Black, um, Black Park. Black Park and, um, you know, some of those some of those uh, locations that are, are clearly just 10 minutes from Pinewood. Um, you know, maybe they could have the opportunity to kind of create that for themselves. But my second point is, um, you know, it depends on how long the franchise will go for and uh, you know what how you know there's a lot of things that a lot of balls up in the air i suppose and um it may well benefit it going to the states um or, or somewhere like that but they have a you know more of a more space and and lots of different environments hmm. I, I suppose the interesting thing this kind of tells us about what some of the script elements might be for the next Bond movie um, is that we're not going to get something probably, well, probably not going to get something like Skyfall that's very London based. So you're not going to get your strict yeah. straight adaptation of the Moonraker novel kind of thing. Bond looks out of his bedroom window over the Los Angeles skyline. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it. Yeah, we'll probably so we'll probably have a film that's again in a similar vein to No Time to Die, and we'll be very sort of putting the locations front and center. It'll be about showcasing locations as well as other things. Well, um, if we compare it to Brosnan's first outing and Craig's first outing, a lot of it was studio bound or backlot. Or locations doubling for places, mm -hmm. especially Goldeneye, Casino, Skyfall. They did a lot of that. Um, there wasn't really a lot of location shoot outside the pre-title sequence. Um, I, I can see them trying to do something with a smaller budget, 
for the next one to kind of de-risk it. And hmm. especially after they lost their money on this one. Um, and going to what you said, Ben, about like how Hollywood's now adapting to like using XR and there's no real need. Mm. I don't think for these massive lots anymore to produce this stuff. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the old school thinking, but with the people that are currently in charge, I don't see it changing. Mm. I think it's going to, if it, if it's a new ownership team that come in, then the whole thing could get mm. the, the playbook could get ripped up and they could do a whole like Mandalorian thing. Like you say, or they could do like, let's do everything on location or it could be, let's do everything on the soundstage because we can control it. I mean, who knows which, which way they'll lead. My, my question with that, James, is that isn't, I mean, I, I, I know so much of um, No Time to Die was digital, but, uh, you know, di- digital backgrounds, and uh, but isn't part of our um, desire uh, to see a Bond film part of the, the travelogue aspect of it and, and wanting to see oh, yeah. real locations? <clears throat> but like No Time Today, you can send out a splinter unit or second unit and do yeah. all that. But the principal actors don't really leave the zip code. Yeah, they can get out of the and shoot the coast, can't they? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of that No Time to Die stuff it was it was splinter units, background stuff. It wasn't, and then it was CG replacement and, yeah. and green screen for stuff you would expect they could do on location. Mm-hmm. But it was just I don't know whether it was quicker, cheaper, security, uh, you know, all all those different aspects to it um some of which i thought was like especially with no time to die given the fact that fukunaga was kind of writing the script the morning they shot um the less location work where the principles probably was a safer bet yeah i suppose in, in a sense as well it does give you an opportunity to write and produce on the fly more you know if you've got some kind of um adaptable set Especially with, as, as you say, with the, with this new technology, where you can basically go, I want to be in Paris or Venice or wherever, right? Um, you can quickly adapt your your script. Um, well, it makes pickups easier, doesn't it? It, it definitely does, yeah. Um, and then you can match the lighting always, and you know the all the conditions can be precise. There's a lot more control over it, and it does seem to be quicker. So, you know, I'd, I'd be it'd be one of those those instances where you feel like if they don't do something like this, then rather than being the the forefront of technology or or production that Bond films always seem to be in the past, they're going to be really sort of missing a trick. I think. I, I just don't know if the economics work anymore for doing it the old way mm. of being location centric but i think they're the movies that people like the most yeah aren't they where you get a feel for the location you feel like you're in it mm-hmm. um hmm. but i also uh, don't like the idea of like writing a script on the fly i know it happens all the time and that adjustments can be made but in my opinion that was like one of the reasons why I didn't like No Time to Die because it felt mm. like things were just kind of like haphazardly put together. And so it could be a very beautifully shot film. The images could be quite seamless. But if you really don't have like a solid sense of where you're going with the storyline and and how locations actually matter as somebody who has 
you know, studied the geographies of James Bond, like mm-hmm. locations actually do matter. And it's not just visual locations, but what they mean spatially, mm-hmm. geopolitically, like these are things that should be thought out well ahead mm-hmm. of time. So I'm all for utilizing technology to visualize um, uh, what you want to, uh, envision, right? Like whatever mm-hmm. idea you have and being able to use technology to push you there, I'm a hundred percent on board, but this idea of using it as a way to, I don't know, erase, edit, um, or change directions or pivot on the fly. I'm just not a big fan of that as being an overall approach, but I'm not against the technology. It's just how it's used. Um, I think I think matters in the world of Bond, and I think it's going to matter to the next film. We can make a lot of concessions for, say, No Time to Die for where it falls within Craig's canon. But there was also like a series of of, of films beforehand where we've got some questions. So, yeah. Mm. To your point about using it as an advantage, had Casino Royale shot at Pinewood, um, mm-hmm. the Casino Royale would not have been in Montenegro, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm. They wouldn't have shot all those location stuff in Prague. That was just different. It was hadn't been seen in a Bond movie before. Um, so maybe using that as a, it's like, why not shoot it in Australia? Do something completely mm. different. I can tell you why. No, <laughs> 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 um, no, I, 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 I. This has often been sort of floated. This this notion, especially when it was cheap to shoot in Australia. Um, which isn't anymore, um, but I don't. I don't know what it is. But even even as somebody who has spent a decade of their life in in Sydney, I I don't I don't really see it as a location for Bond at all. <laughs> um, just well, well, I mean, it could. I mean, there's <laughs> the, you could use that as a as a production base for studio, but use surrounding areas as doubles right yeah yeah i mean that's i mean they they didn't actually shoot they didn't actually shoot montenegro right i mean but it was doubled and that's what i'm saying is that's how you get to those locations that you would would imagine canada would be a a smarter bet you know going to Mm -hmm. vancouver would be a smarter bet than going to Mm -hmm. um uh australia but yeah i take your point yeah Let's do it, Canada. <laughs> well, they tried. Dan- Danny Boyle tried. I know. Um, to get stuff built in Ontario, which doubling for Russia. Um, hence, there's still a Canadian tax credit on No Time to Die. Hmm. Hmm. Look at the credits. Um, I mean, there is, you, you know, Canada is, as a country, um, and I'm sorry, Lisa, because I know you must really miss it. But, yeah. Um, it's just so versatile, you know. Uh, it really, it really does present a lot of um, opportunities. I think. So um, pivoting over, um, so the Warner Brothers Discovery mega merger, forty-three billion dollar deal, got approved. Well, greenlit this week for the U.S. regulatory authorities, which means that the Amazon MGM acquisition is probably fine. Um, because if they were fine with Warner and Discovery, Amazon MGM's like small potatoes. Um, the thing that struck me that was interesting, and I don't know whether they were playing dumb because they couldn't say anything, but when the two MGM heads were interviewed this week by Deadline about how do you think it's going to go when the Amazon deal goes through, their answer was like, we have no clue. Hmm. And we hope that we can continue to do theatrical, but 
you know, the media is changing and we need to go where the viewers are. And I think they left the door open to not being anti-stream as anti-streaming as they were during the pan, you know, the height of the pandemic before the deal came through. But I, I don't know if that's just them holding their cards close to the chest. Um, but the other interesting thing they mentioned was like, we are looking at original IP at MGM because we can't just rely on making a Bond movie every five years. I was like, <laughs> uh, what? Is that a direct <laughs> quote? They said five yes, years. Yes, five wow. years. I was like, wow. uh, guys, yeah, that was the last one. That shouldn't be normal. Because mm. mm. MGM were the, were, the, were the pressure to do it every two years. Mm. And it was, it was Dan, Jack, and Ian that pushed back and you know, asked for three or four or five. So... Is that now normal? MGM came out and said, yeah, we do this every five years. It's like, shit. <laughs> Don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, I would hope not. <laughs> uh, make, oof, gosh, make, yeah, that's a horrible make thought. Make five back to back, right? Just the, the, the lead actor will be a withered husk. But, <laughs> you know, but by that point, it won't matter. We'll just have our one a year then. And you know, um, then you can do you like a bring, kind the, of a bring the average, bring the average back to two one every two years. Then he wouldn't age either throughout the the, the five or six years, right? And mm. then then finally on the last one, you could do a in memoriam. <laughs> 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 well, hopefully, you would have the, whoever the next actor is would be, uh, you know, hungry to. Do it. I know that uh, Tom Holland was in the news recently because he pitched a Bond idea, which sounded terrible and didn't uh, go anywhere, which is fine. But still, you know, having an actor like him, who is mm. or, or Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, you know, they're they're really hungry for this. Uh, mm. They really want to make these films, and I think that would make all of the difference if there was that kind of a driving force behind it as well. Uh, but we'll see, I suppose. Mm. It, it it would be interesting to see actually to see them do two back to back. That would be fascinating to see. I still think, and I know that I I don't mean to like channel Phil, uh, who's not here, but I mean he sort of mentioned to us as an aside, sort of the one and done mm. as the option. And I am not against this. And I'll put it right out there. I love Idris Elba. If I'm, you're going to give me a one and done Bond, I'm throwing it out there. If you see me on so. Oh, you can. You can <laughs> Like when people say he's too old for this long landscape, I'm just throwing it out there. He can be a one and done bond as you recalibrate and figure it out. But I kind of like the idea of having more reg more more bond films in a general sense. Yeah. And if that means one-off episodes to make them purely episodic, not these drawn-out narratives, if that means kind of switching up actors a little bit more frequently. I am 100% in uh, for that. I just want the content and not just these really long waiting periods because I think then that leads for fans and audiences to get their hopes up. And then if if the products don't match what some of those fans have, then that's where the disappointment falls. So I think, yeah. you, need, I think you need somebody like Phil to come along and just float this different perspective on the, yeah. the notion of serialization of these things as well. You know, everyone looks at looks back at Lazyby and thinks, "Oh, isn't it?" You know, he only did the one like it was some kind of huge failing, and you know, right? 
as opposed to somebody going, yeah, I'll give well, this one a go. I mean, and, and- yeah, uh, mathematically, you could say that given that the first film of each actor is usually one of their best, why not just make one? Yeah. Yeah. And, Knock it out of the park. And I, I agree. I agree with Phil. I agree with Lisa entirely. I, I mean, a, a one and done Idris Elba Bond would be um, would be amazing. And you could you could throw everything at it because right. you knew that that was going to be that was going to be it. And everyone would get that. You know, everyone's been waiting for that. Really, there is a <laughs> there's a group of us I think that exists that just would love, really love to see that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it would, I think it would then, uh, just set a, set a kind of, um, a precedent for being able to just come in and, and do one or do two and then, you know, things change again. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's really the future where Bond could and probably should go. Yeah, like straw straw poll between all the one and ones. I I do like the idea in concept. Um, do you keep the recurring characters cast the same? I don't think it matters. Like you know, yeah, you might you might get an um, an actor who wants to sign on um, for for a role for a number of films, right? And that that's probably a contract they might be looking for. But I don't think it matters between you, you know you don't. It doesn't seem I mean, weird when it's. I, I, are we saying that it doesn't matter who plays their money penny Q because everybody knows who the character is. You don't have to introduce them. You don't have to do backstory. You can yeah. just be like, this is M. Exactly. Right? I mean, contextually, you know that the person sitting behind the desk and telling him, you know, or her what to do is, yeah, it's, you know, I think you just, you can plug and play a lot of these, these characters. Um, and you could do some strategic casting, like these moments, like, oh, that's Sam. Oh, that's my, like, it could be unexpected. This is where you could play with different characters. There's their star personas. I think that there's a way of having audience reaction factor into the, the reveal of who are playing these characters and how they're going to interpret them. Um, so I think that there's there's potential there to, to, to mobilize it in a very different way than it's been played before. Yeah, and Eon can just put out press releases that say that they're definitely not playing that character. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fun thing to do would then be to have those cast members play a different role mm. in a, in the next film, right? Just to, oh, like shaking yeah. up the little the little snow globe, and we just don't yeah. know where it's going to fall. Timothy Dalton as M. Yeah, um. <laughs> that reminds me of that that Mitchell and Webb look. Um, sketch where they both play homes um, in the in the film, but, the, but whenever they move into another room, they switch roles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so my off the wall idea uh, was cast somebody to do five movies on a contract or four movies on a contract, but each film takes place in a different decade. No. Oh. So we have a sixties Bond, a seventies Bond, an eighties Bond. Uh, I don't know if you want to bother with the nineties. Uh two thousand you know, right? right? <laughs> like but take take the same cast, but do a period bond movie in different decades. Yeah. That could be really interesting. I don't know any series franchise IP that has done that. Hmm. The only yeah, thing that I can think of is some episodes of Star Trek take their entire cast and put them in, you know, di- you know like different environments. 
and right. they're not playing, but they're not playing. There was a really good episode of Deep Space Nine that did did that referenced um, in the new book, I w- which I will we'll look get up to. and mention to you later. <laughs> but it's but yeah, again, it's it's essentially it's the same cast. You know who these people are, and, and they're kind of versions of of their um, other selves, but they're interacting in you know the 30s or whatever it is so yeah i think that that has potential to work they did it in um x-men when they sort of did the uh first class uh run so there was 60s and 70s 80s i can't remember they went Uh, up to 90s yeah nobody Uh, bothers with the 90s but it was kind of <laughs> it was kind of uh, linear still in a set. You just had to not question why Michael Fassbender ages not one bit between 1960 uh, and 1990. Yeah. But then in that 10 year span, he suddenly jumps to be Ian McKellen in the year 2000 when the timeline catches up. But, yeah. It was a moisturizer supplier, uh, died. And... No, I think that the thing with that was that it just kind of ran out of steam and that and just kind of yeah. got forgotten about as they went along because Dark Phoenix was the 90s one, wasn't it? And then I think there was one scene I in think the so. 90s and then everything I, else just looked like the modern day. I challenged yeah. myself to watch all those films and uh, that was really bad. <laughs> my, 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 my lasting memory of that was seeing the second one and sitting in BAFTA next to Craig Charles and Danny John Jules from Red Dwarf. <laughs> That was the highlight of that experience. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it would have been. Um, so the yeah. problem, though, with this this approach, if I'm going to poke a hole into its innovativeness, because I think it's a really cool idea, is like, what happens if you do the first one and it bombs and it sucks? Like, it's a, it's great in theory, but maybe it doesn't get executed well. Maybe people well, you didn't haven't like told, it. You haven't told anybody that the next one would be the 70s. Mm. Oh, okay. So, right? so this would this be a covert like, operation. See, by the third one, people will figure it out. Okay, because I was like, if if you bomb it, then everyone's going to be like, I'm not going to the 70s one. Um, yeah, okay. We just have these, these changing hairstyles of just mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, fat chops. And- but, <clears throat> but the benefit I saw to it was that, um, you know, if the Bond films are always made, you know, quote unquote, five minutes into the future, the benefit of going back in time and doing period ones, even if it's 60s, 70s, 80s, is because you know what's coming. So your plots I, I think can that, be. I think. See what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but then there's no peril. I think the because you know because yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, Gav. No, 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 no. Finish, Gav. I think we we're going to say a similar thing. Oh, I I just think the thing is, oh, it's like if you it was it reminded me for like when they did the Man from Uncle movie, right? And it was said you like you can't set up a global peril. Yeah, is going to destroy the world in the '60s because we're living. You know, it was 2015 when it came out. Whatever, we know that that didn't happen. So we know that they, you know, so therefore there are no real. I mean, obviously we know they're going to succeed, but there's no stakes for you as a viewer, really. I think um, the King's Man as well, which was a recent uh, box office flop, really. Mm. I haven't seen it yet myself, but I know from conversations I've had oh, with people they I've needed to do a lot of. <laughs> they they had yeah. to spend a lot of time setting up what who Archduke Franz Ferdinand was and all of these yeah, politics right. and uh, sequence of situations that led to World War One, and you have to do so much of that kind of stuff if you've if you set it in well, the past uh, dynamics yeah. of Cold War and whatnot. I- 
I, I think the whole concept of that movie became that how do we do that? another play on the word Kingsman? It's like King apostrophe S man. <laughs> okay, so he has to report to the king. When was that? 1920. Okay, right. I mean, that's probably how that came about. I, I, I was one of yeah. however many five people that saw that film. And the, the, the thing ah. was that they did all that setup and they put all that time in to explain all this. And then by the end, they just kind of didn't did their own thing where they changed history and it was all working like mm. it was all fiction and it was really strange. It was like, why have you spent so long establishing all this historical fact then to turn it into historical fiction halfway through? Yeah, mm. yeah that's know. a really weird thing to do. Mm. So I'm going to tie this back to, to two things, Sean, about Doctor Who. Right? One is rewriting fictional history to lead into real world events, mm-hmm. right? Like this happened, so that happened. And it was mm-hmm. all along, it was this fictional character, right? Right. Which is what that series does, whether it's the fire of London or whatever else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and two, doing this one-off thing, there's a franchise that had a linear set of limited people in the role. And then in this last series said, you know what? Now there's hundreds of them. You just haven't seen them. And it just like <laughs> devalued everybody that's played the role. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the risk yeah. of the one it yeah. does. Like you lose the um, rarity of that role. I, I, I also my, my worry also about going back and doing a period piece would be you're then going to get everyone trying to slot this in and work this in as a prequel. And I honestly don't mm-hmm. know if I could take all that narrative and discussion online with people trying to <laughs> conspiracy theory how it all works and how I'm, I'm just getting flashbacks of that awful IGN timeline right. video and i just everything can't fits, everything fits between quantum solace and yeah. skyfall i just can't just do something after just so it's really obvious please it's so weird to me that that there are people who think that it is some kind of i mean you know continual timeline mm. from sean connery to daniel craig it just you know like to try to the gymnastics that are done to kind of make everything fit is is sort of a bit crazy, really. Um, no offense mm. to anybody, obviously, who, who does think that <laughs> stuff. Um, I know crazy is a, a pejorative, and I, I apologize. Um, but yeah, like you got better things to do, right? Than that. Yeah, I'm not. Well, no, I just more that they can only, <laughs> that they can only make sense of it. Or allow it to to make sense in their mind if if they can you well, know, put these, put it together in this particular way. Without- well, to, to bring it back to to sorry to bring it back to Doctor Who in the that the Doctor Who fandom in a way is kind of going through that problem right now in that you've got sixty years worth of backstory and episodes and books and mm. people, everyone's trying to piece it all together and there seems to be. It's kind of become creatively restricting in a way that I guess the Star Wars extended universe did the same thing and stopped sort of Mm. like creative ideas happening in the films. And my worry then is if you try and tie everything together and make more prequels and stuff, you're just going to limit the things you Mm -hmm. can do. All this does is sort of funnels the direction you can take the franchise in. Mm. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. So stepping away from the movies, um, given that we might not see a new film, I, I don't think, for three to four years, um, there's other things to do, right? Um, ben, seeing that your Twitter handle got stolen for the... Uh, 
I was, title I was, of the new book. Very flattering. No, <laughs> I'm I'm hugely excited uh, for for this book. Uh, I have to say, um, in the little kind of uh, what's it called again? It's called Double or Nothing. <laughs> Double or Nothing. Um, and um, yeah, I I, I think it's uh, it's a really interesting um, premise. Basically, of it's Bond has gone missing, um, possibly killed, and uh, three other double O agents are are kind of assigned to the case. Um, and so it's kind of following these three uh, agents, um, and I, I guess there's there's a few unanswered questions about um, you know with continuity and things like that, and where is it where is it set in 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 terms of the timeline of of literary bond, or is it or is it going to be its own entire thing? But I think judging from the the blurb that I read, which is that, it, that there is a the the threat of uh, global warming or um, climate climate crisis, I get, I'm guessing that it is a contemporary one. Um, so that should be very interesting to see uh, the take on this. And there are a few nods in the doc. I, I'm surprised they they gave out the names of the agents. Yeah, almost as a throw-in to the blurb. I was like, that should have been a huge reveal, publicity reveal. Like, could have, that could have done three of them, right? Yeah, um, yeah, they really could. And I, and I like that it's, um, you know, the uh, it looks like the main um, double O is is going to be a, a woman um, who is, you know, named after. Uh, the uncredited screenwriter of, uh, I think, Dr. No and a couple of others, right? Um, Joanna Harwood. Joanna Harwood, yeah. So, um, and one of the others, other double O's is called Bashir, which um, I can't stop thinking about Julian Bashir on Deep Space Nine, who would go into the Holosuite <laughs> to pretend to be James Bond. So I, I'm, there is sort of a weird connection with, with that as well. Um, but um, Kim seems like a really uh, cool person and uh, someone who obviously is very passionate about literature. Um, and yeah, uh, from the I've, I've had a couple of um, comments with her, exchanged with her on um, on Instagram, um, and she, you know her passion for the you know the Bond stories is you know, it's pretty evident. She knows her stuff. So um, I have very high hopes. And it is nice to have, um, she's sort of the first woman author in the literary world of Bond, somebody mm-hmm. who has clear knowledge about Ian Fleming's canon, very familiar with the character and and James Bond's legacy in a broader sense. And I think for me, it goes to show, again, this nod to the fact that women have been creators in the world of Bond, whether you're talking about uncredited script writers as producers, even credited script writers. And even when we think about No Time to Die, it's really about 
storytelling in many ways from a woman's perspective, whether it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge and all of the publicity, or even the storytelling that happens near the end, where it's Madeline Swan telling the story of James Bond to her daughter, right? There is this notion about women telling stories, which has been a thread, at least media-wise, going through. And so to see somebody like Kim come in and be able to write a trilogy, not just one book, but but three, to me is something that is incredibly exciting um, and an exciting development about really expanding what it means, at least our understanding of what it means to create storylines um, in the world of James Bond. So I just, I mean, I have also had conversations with Kim Sherwood and she's fantastic and passionate and responsive um, to people who 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 uh, write to her and and who I mean I offered my support um, and so I think that that's just it's it's really great at least from my perspective I'm yeah. very excited about it. Um, is the trilogy? Um, so we might not know this yet. Are the, is each book going to focus on one double O agent, or is it going to be all three throughout the whole trilogy? Don't know. There's three in the first one and. Um, I was kind of thinking of spooks and I, I, I'd be amazed if all three make it through the first book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely. a good dramatic, dramatic punch is to kill one of them off. Yeah. Um, the deep fat fryer. That's right. Oof. Yeah. 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 Um, Nasty. 20 years Nasty. Uh, anniversary. That scene was, was a few weeks ago. Gosh. Um, being broadcast. Um, yeah. It's a long time ago now, isn't it? Um, we're, that was in the Clive Owens going to be James Bond era. That's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but we, lest we forget, Anthony Horowitz has got his third book out in May. Mm-hmm. Um, critically, I think between most literary Bond fans that read the continuation novels, his are held up very highly, mm-hmm. um, if not the highest, post Fleming. Um, and it, I think that's a bit of a sleeper, isn't it? That it, we're, we're like we're like three months out from it, and like. It's so weird, James, because um, he's one of those novelists that I've wanted to have as, like, you know, as my dream kind of writer for Bond. And then he gets it, and then he does three books. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, this, his first two books are fantastic. And it seems so strange to me that this has kind of snuck up on me. And I'm, you know, I've, I've been more excited about, uh, Kim's Double O um, trilogy. Then I really, I haven't even really thought about um, the, the this one, and yeah, um, which is surprising because it because so far um, they are my favourites of the um, the continuation novels. Has anybody? This is a complete sidebar, but it's an Anthony Horowitz uh, plug. Anyone seen Alex Ryder on Amazon Prime? which my dad and I, we like to, you know, sort of stream similar shows. And so that's our newest one. And it's about like a young high schooler. I think he's a high schooler who's sort of brought into maybe MI6. Uh, but it's it's very sort of much like we were talking here about like young Bond and, you know, James Bond Jr. and all our conversations off of Mike about James Bond Jr., Sean and I talking about it. And Calvin <laughs> they tried, uh, yeah, they tried to do a, a, a film yeah. of... Um, Stormbreaker was it Stormbreaker? Um, yeah, yeah. Yep. Some a few years back, and um, it wasn't it wasn't bad. It was kind of a fun little 
little movie. Oh, and, and by the way, my it's a sequel to Windbreaker and Icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my handle double o nothing comes from um, an Alex Ryder book um, mm-hmm. when when he's tra- getting trained. So in- that, that's why you weren't defending it too much as your own property then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally stole it from, um, from mm-hmm. Anthony Horowitz, uh, which I, I have told him, and he said that's fine. So uh, <laughs> you got the blessing. <laughs> yes, I do, I do have the, the, the creator's blessing for that. So, um, yeah, um, I've kind of lost my thread, really. What were we saying, Lisa? Uh, oh. Alex Ryder. So yeah. the, the, interest, the interesting twist in that was like Alex Ryder's, Horace Alex Ryder's books were successful in youth, what do they call mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Young readers. Yeah. And that's what spurred IFP to get Charlie Hickson to do Young Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which then brought Anthony Horowitz in to do the adult novels, which is now spun off to the Amazon Prime. So I haven't I haven't seen the Alex Ryder uh, Amazon Prime uh, series. I have read the books and I have um, seen the movie of the the, the one with the um, same with theme too. Mm. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the books. Um, are actually honestly worth a read. They mm-hmm. are, they have something of Fleming's kind of tongue in cheek um, humor in there. There's a there's a kind of a a sense that he's taking it, taking this absurdity very seriously, and it it, it really does reflect a lot of Fleming's prose style. Um, and I remember reading him, and this is way before he he was kind of touted as you know writing for um, Bond. It, I was just surprised by how similar their their prose style is. So definitely worth a read. Hundred um, percent agree. Uh, it's been a while since I read the books, but I did read. Oh, I, I can't remember if it was six or seven when I was a kid. I I was one of the young readers contributing towards those uh, sales <laughs> and. Uh, I think the series does a really great job of translating that. The update, obviously, it's 20-odd years since some of these things are written now, and I think they do a mm-hmm. really great job at updating it. And uh, Toby Stevens, of course, was in the second season as uh, the main villain, and he had a few mm-hmm. Gustav Graves kind of moments in there. Like He's got kind of this robot arm thing that he's using to control a drone at one point, and... He- Part of the, will be a, a part of the finale takes place aboard a big plane. It's very similar yeah. in, in, in never, a lot of regards. Never since Jane Seymour has anybody actively hated his role in Bond, but leaned into that fucking thing for his career. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's a recommendation from from you, Lisa and Calvin. I've seen only mm. two episodes, but I think that this has just opened up a really great conversation. Recognizing, you know, different contributors to in a sense the world of bond but like spy fiction in a broader sense Mm -hmm. and it's nice to always be able to maybe expand our lens a little bit and see what the rest of the spy world has to offer Mm-hmm. You can really tell that they uh, shot season two like while COVID was uh, happening because <laughs> all of a sudden you go from season one to season two and it's like, oh, this school for this, funnily enough, very uh, empty at the moment. There aren't many students out on break time right now. <laughs> Mr. Stevens doesn't like to shake hands or get within 20 feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. 
um, but to, but yeah. back to the back to the uh, the Horowitz book though, James. Um, I can't. I I couldn't even tell you the title of it off the top of my head. Uh, oh. The funny thing was, is when we got it under embargo, right? Mm. And I Googled it. Of course, Amazon already had it listed. It's just that nobody had found it, right? right. I mean, they don't care. Um, but when I Googled it, it came up with the cover art of a different Anthony Horowitz novel with like practically the same title. Uh, with a mind to kill. Oh, that's yeah. Right. And I remember reading the plot and it really confused me, the little synopsis they've given, because I feel like they've taken a lot from the Man with the Golden Gun novel. And I was like, well, that's the kind of the same thing. And I don't know where they're going to go with it. Yeah, it's, there's definitely, I don't, I don't, I never feel like it's um, lazy at, at any, any point, Sean. Um, but there are def, you know, like it's not like he's sort of sitting there and just plucked a. Oh no, no, I, I don't get I really enjoyed. I've read Trigger Mortis, and mm. I really enjoyed that. I don't think I ever finished Forever in a Day. Um, but it's, the, really, I, the, it's really, really good. Oh, <laughs> his, his other novel is A Line to Kill. Oh right. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty pretty close. But, but yeah, to be I fair mean, to to be fair to Mister Horowitz, like the title decision is the publisher usually. Yeah. It's not the author. So, but I do, I do really um, rate him as a as a writer, and certainly as a uh, a Bond continuation novelist. But he, there are definitely times when you um, you feel that there are some very familiar elements, and I, you know, obviously that that's something that might have been required. Um, but at other points, it does sort of. There are just tiny moments where you go, yeah, I've, I've been here before. <laughs> um, do, do we know whereabouts this one sits in the Bond book sort of timeline? Because I know the, the, thing, the thing with Trigger, Trigger Mortis was that that followed it, immediately on from Goldfinger, didn't it? Right. Yeah, this, one, this one's at the end. Right. From what we understand. I mean... But that, but that in itself is like, well, where in the end? Where's right? the end, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I genuinely like the fact that he is slotting these adventures into the classic Fleming timeline, and that he's kind of honouring that's that's the Fleming character, right? You know that we're we're getting, and you know I really I really like that he's done that, um, and it and because his style is so very similar, you you can comfortably read. The Fleming, well, not comfortably if it's Goldfinger, obviously. It's just <laughs> so problematic. But um, but the nice thing about uh, what Trigger Mortis did, I think, was address some of those uh, prob- problematic aspects of Goldfinger and then sort of flipped them around a little bit for, for Trigger Mortis. And, I, you know, I, I think it went a little bit of a way to um, remedying it, I suppose. I I, th- I think what we what, what this needs and to what would be the most exciting news to come of all this would be a return of Calvin Dyson's John Gardiner reviews series. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just listening to you talk about these books and I was like, I'm trying to do the continuity uh, continuation novels in order. So I'm like, oh, I'll probably get to these in about like 10 years time after I finally get through John Gardner's Role of Honor, which I've been trying to get through for two years now because I keep getting to the bit where he talks about his uncle Bruce in Australia. And I'm like, oh God, I just can't go, go beyond this. Oh my God. Just, just get the audio book and, uh, you know. Yeah, and when you're doing the best of me. It's, yeah. <laughs> so hang on, I can't remember if it's it's, it's um, license renewed for special services. Role of honor is that the is that uh, the uh, or is it the other way uh, around? No, there's uh, icebreaker is the third one, and then role of honor. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay. I, yeah. And I, I don't know beyond that, yeah. but I just know there's a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, yeah. You're, you're, you're four into 14, so ways to go. <sighs> they're, 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 they're okay. Uh, wait till you get to Benson. Mm. Well, some, there are some crackers <laughs> late Garner, but then there's also some not-so-good ones. I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, but the, the, the really interesting ones to me were like, the license to kill and goldeneye novelizations because Gardner <laughs> tied them into his continuity. It's 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 when he's finding another excuse for Felix Leiter to be eaten right. by a shark. <laughs> yes, again, <laughs> it's, great. it's great. Again, it's one of those. Th- it, it's one of those things you read it and it's so weird, but it, because it's so bizarre and so like jumping through so many hoops, you're like, this is great. You know, you're just having a good time. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. So, other than the books, we should say Dynamite's still pumping the comics out, and some interesting stuff coming on there. I mean, if you want to like, if you want to read about like, uh, just like Maxwell in the James Bond universe, there's a series out right now um, where they just take that real life story and make a James Bond adventure out of it, which was like the most weird thing I think I've seen in a long time. Um, but what other things are dropping or have dropped that piqued you guys' interest since Christmas? Maybe in the merchandise department. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want to there's say. A, there's a really big silence for a reason. Um, I, uh, Sean, uh, I think Sean's probably got the most positive yeah. thing to say yes, about I, it. I, I've, got, I've got a few. So are we talking about merchandise in particular? Yeah. yeah. Wait, are we going to talk about the James Bond teddy bear? I'm trying not to yes. bring it up because no, I know about you the teddy love bear. it. I like the, so, so yes, I, I like the teddy bear, and um, there was I, I remember everyone was it was everyone was shitting all over it. The poor, poor little teddy bear, which I thought he was. With, doesn't he look cute? That you think he looks cute? And I know he's expensive, but I, the thing is, is that I my so my mum is kind of into like old vintage teddy bears, and this is a stife bear which are a brand that are, they're about 100 years old and i think now they make the bears out of cashmere and so they're very much a kind of like luxury collector's teddy bear and so i didn't think the price was actually actually that bad considering how many of them they were made that they're, they're never going to get made again and i know I'm kind of sounding like a sort of bit of promo marketing but um I quite like the teddy bear. I would happily trust him to save the world. <laughs> and I will have to say that as I was um, dismissing it, I didn't want to say shitting on it, but as I was dismissing it online, you and I had a conversation where you talked to me about your connection um, with this. And um, I definitely thought like, okay, it was just one of those things where 
It's just a really, really high priced and to me, a very random thing to be putting out in marketing, um, at least at that juncture. And I mean, if you do go on to the 007 store, you'll see that there are some more lower ticket items, probably more so now than I've seen before, different games, different um I don't want to, the word tourist comes in mind, but like more Chuck sort keys. of, yeah, like that is like just sort of regular person merchandise that, that you can get or like, um, sort of iconic memorabilia, things like that. Uh, but it just sort of struck me that we've seen just a lot of high ticket items and, Sometimes I wonder who they're being made for. And then I see they're sold out and I'm like, who has the money, you know, to pay for all this stuff? But I mean, clearly there's a market for it. I will say this, if I'm going to, you know, just put my my push out there for items. Um, I've spoken to um, a variety of, of women out there. And I know I've said this before, who would really love to see more clothing options um, that are either in women's sizing um, or sort of unisex sizing that capitalize on not just the fashion of some of the women, but also some of the men characters as well. Um, that there are women who are fans of Bond, women who want to write like James Bond, women who want to create like James Bond. Um, but there are a lot of people out there who would purchase items if there were more options out there. So that's just me putting a plug out from the conversations I'm having with people messaging me um, saying, if they had this, I would buy it. And I get a lot of those messages. So that's Free market sort of research by, right by, by a doctor in 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 bond so you can't you can't get better than that um seriously contact me i'm happy to have a conversation whoever's making this stuff <laughs> just put a little line over here i can tell you what some people are telling me that they want yeah i want to now see a one and done teddy bear bond <laughs> like paddington oh <laughs> maybe we can get ben Shaw to, to voice him <sighs> And, you know, that would, that would be the funny thing because he would come back and voice Paddington Bond. And, and, and that, and that would be the one and done weird Bond Paddington crossover. Oh, oh I'm going to be so sad if that never happens. Paddington 3 is about to go into production as well. Oh, can you imagine how good would it be if he ended up being recruited by MI6? Oh, oh, and, you know, I, do you know what I would settle for, right? Is if in the next Bond movie, just in the background of a shot somewhere, Walks Paddington Bear, you know? Very easy. It's blurry, it's soft focus. And you just see him, yeah. like, walking past. He takes a marmalade sandwich out of his hat. It's, you wouldn't notice it unless you were told it's there, but, oh, that would that would be. And Bond, and Bond nods and says, 008. <laughs> and then this whole teddy bear thing that, that I've been sort of crapping on would all make sense. Like, they yeah. would show me up, like... Two years down the line and be like, we, we told you it was coming. This was our hint. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you make a really interesting point, though, about the um, about clothing for women, Lisa, because I'm looking at the 007 store now, and there is one page of women that's advertised of clothing that's advertised for women, and then four pages of clothing op options that are advertised for men. So. And I would love like that this is going to sound maybe people think this is controversial, but I would love to have like a dress like 007 and then recognize that in No Time to Die, there were two characters of different genders who played 007. And so you could have the same item, but you could have 
like men sizing, unisex sizing, women sizing, like they oftentimes do for t-shirts and stuff like that. I'm just saying that would be a really great way of offering this notion of dressing like 007 since we've already crossed some of those lines. Mm. I'm, I'm surprised they've not done Nomi's safari suit yet, actually. That mm. seems like an obvious mm. thing to do. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I am just one of those people that doesn't really get in on the merchandising part of it. and. From my, well, I think that there's probably two classes of merchandising, right, Ben? There's the the one that we both hate, which is random object 007 logo, right? But then there's the clever stuff, which is like the prop replicas and the fashion and all that other kind of the stuff. Pop vinyls. I, I mean, I guess I could spring to like a like a prop replica, maybe, but I I don't I just don't feel like it's something that I kind of need to have. I don't need to have like a you know, a cabinet of things like like that as touchstones. I mean, no disrespect to the people that do, and I think that's really genuinely. I I, I think it's awesome that there are all of these different categories of of uh, Bond uh, fandom and how it you know how it scales up. And I I just I just don't I I like nicely made things, and often those nicely made things happen to be also in Bond movies. And expensive. Um, but I don't, I don't look specifically for, you know, a, a particular item or I tend to like the brands just because I happen to like those brands, but I, right. I don't really like the, I don't really like the tie and stuff. And even when it comes down to kind of, kind of lower, lower end kind of things, like very ent- entry point kind of uh, merchandise, I mean, I guess a pack of cards or something like that might be fun to bring out on poker night or something like that. But really, yeah, I, um, it, it, it's not. I'm I'm not that fan, and you know, I don't think I've ever right. bought anything from the. I bought. I no. I, I I tell a lie. I bought like art books and makings of, and you know the, those kinds of things. But I've just never bought tr- sort of trinkets. I guess. Right. I, I think what's a, what's kind of a shame is how, yes, it's it's sort of maybe good for the brand to position Bond as a luxury brand, but also you're kind of you're excluding people and particularly people who are on lower incomes and people who can't afford this kind of like expensive prop merch or, or who just aren't interested. Like I can remember when I was when I was a kid. Um, I, I think I was in that era where I was almost spoiled a little bit because there was stuff like 007 Spy Files and um, Action Men yeah. that were James Bond and stuff like yeah. that. It was so exciting. And now it doesn't feel like there's that same excitement to yep. sort of appeal to normal people, I guess. Yeah. So <laughs> to your point, Sean, it's like if you're talking about people who don't have a whole lot of cash to spend on expensive things from <laughs> young people. Mm-hmm. Young people, right? <laughs> who, who does the franchise need to attract? Young people. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I think that's why there's that disconnect right now. And but I think Sean maybe, is 100%. Maybe, maybe proven out in the No Time to Die US box yeah. office. Definitely. But I think Sean is, is really picking up on something that <laughs> it's being reflected in the merchandise. Mm. I don't think... Well, 
Well, it would be, I, mean, I don't think that these films are necessarily being marketed to younger audiences. I feel like there was that phase in the 1990s with children's uh, toys and stuff like that, that that was really younger, the younger Bond audience. And that audience okay. has grown up. And I think they're still marketing to that specific demographic. But there really aren't any significant tie-ins in, in the, 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 the Daniel Craig era in a general sense to really bring in younger viewers and not recognizing that those are the viewers who do spend the money to go to movie theaters. And so I just think that the merchandise itself is just, to me, sending a message of the demographic that they're trying to appeal towards. And that is not necessarily including younger viewers. I think the thing about the, especially the late 90s, early 2000s, where all those things you mentioned, Sean, came out, like Spy Files and that kind of stuff. Let's not forget that was like peak video game era for mm -hmm. Bond. Yeah. and. Um, I think a lot of that class of 97 to 2003 or whatever it is um, was more gaming orientated than movies anyway. Well, I, 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 but there, there was just, there just felt like there was so much more. Like there was the, like, I, what, the line of corgis sort of uh, cars and stuff, like yeah. just exciting mm. things that you could go into a shop with a tenor and you could come out with some kind of new James Bond merch. Like that's really exciting as a, as a prospect, and now you can't do that anywhere, really. You can go in Selfridges, and the cheapest merch is a pair of socks for 25 quid. It's, it's not the same. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Sean, because I, I, I have these exact same memories that you do of, of these exact same things. <laughs> and I do wonder how much of it is like an issue with kind of how they announce these things, how they promote them. Like A lot of franchises can have their cake and eat it, too, with this kind of stuff you have very high-end expensive items and then um things at the other end of the scale i do wonder how much of it you know you know the disdain from the fandom comes from the fact that it all of the stuff comes through the official 007 twitter account and yeah it, it's all of these uh outlets that a kind of you know they're announcing products they're also announcing new films they're announcing books and all these kinds of things on the same channel and i do wonder if it if it was a bit more tailored and that there was a self-awareness <laughs> from the people promoting these things that are 25 grand lighter being promoted like a week after a, you know, a black shirt with a 007 printed on it for a, a tenor, you know, the, the, right. the, there is a disparity there. Yeah. Yes. And for the collector, we are now at the Nexus where you can go and buy the real thing for less than the replica thing. <laughs> God. Um, and, and, and there has been a spate over the last six months, and I think we're going to see more of it as we're in the 60th anniversary, of a lot of um, collectors selling up. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of auctions going on for mm -hmm. gen genuine things from the franchise, whether it's props, clothes, paperwork, book, you know, whatever it is. Um, but the, well, now, that used to be like that was the echelon of collecting. And now it's like tier two because that's cheaper than buying a robe from Octopussy from the 007 store, which is insane, mm. right? Right. Like you can, like we said before we started recording, that you could get the you know the uh, Majesty Secret Service ring was cheaper than the gold lighter, right? So well, a, a real ring used in a production mm -hmm. versus a replica yeah. lighter. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, oh. can come, I can come on to that now because I, I spotted this. So 
for anyone that's not spotted this over the past few weeks, and I think the auction closed today, but Sotheby's were auctioning off one of the original gold we have all the time in the world wedding rings from On A Majesty's Secret Service. And there were two made, one sold a few years ago, and then one's closed either this week or today. Um, and the estimate to sell it was between fifteen and £20,000, which was cheaper than the gold lighter in the 007 store. Mm. Yeah, it it did sell and, for a little bit more than the estimate, but the right. fact that, that but the fact that like that was estimated at that price when mm. the gold Zippo lighter, which I don't really, you know, if it was a Dunhill or something like that, or you know, that well, makes here's the thing: there was only sense. two. There's, there was only two of those rings ever made. The provenance of it is well known. There's nothing to stop the 007 store bringing out that lighter again at a lower price, and just saying now we're making 500. There's nothing yeah. to stop them doing it. Um, yeah. So, in terms of it as an investment, my advice to anybody who collects is buy it for your own enjoyment. Assume it's worth nothing, mm-hmm. because it probably isn't. Mm. Yeah. Uh, would, would it, Which would is it, all. NFT argument. Oh no, let's not go there. <laughs> uh, would Would any of you like to take a guess? By the way, how much the uh, how much James Bond's wedding ring sold for? Uh, Thirty-one thousand pounds. Thirty-one. Anyone else? I'm gonna go uh, twenty-four. Fifty. Thirty-five. Thirty-five. Did you say thirty-five? Well, bit a bit a bit a bit of thirty-one, thirty-one, thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it goes to Lisa. Um, the it it sold for fifty six thousand seven hundred. So it did go <gasps> oh for okay. quite a lot. But again, it is, right. it's Goodness. James Bond's wedding ring. Like, yeah, hmm. that's, that's right. only two Zippo lighters. <laughs> a two Zippo lighters for one ring yeah. ratio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. But like, like, but, but James, Somebody comes around to your house and they see you got this nice little thing lit up in this little glass case in the shelf. And you're like, what's that? Oh, it's like one of only two James Bond wedding rings. Wow, how fucking cool. All right, somebody else walks into the other house. It's like, what's that? Oh, it's a gold zippo light with a 007 logo on it. Oh, yeah. How many of those were made? 200. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't kind of have the same. Because it, it looks no. like it came from Alibaba. Right. But the other, you know, this is the screen used item. This is actually the ring that was put on the finger of, you know, Diana Rigg. It's it's pretty. It's a big deal. I think it's a big deal. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably not that I'm. As I say, I'm I'm one of the the, the least collecty type of people there is. But if you know, I I would love to have that ring. That's amazing. That's such an amazing. It's it's kind of like, would you rather have a screen-used car from the James Bond film that was actually used on film or the replica DB5? Right. Mm. Yeah. Because they both probably cost about the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd rather have the screen-used car, to be honest with you. Right. You can go sort of like if... I'm going to go buy, if I'm going to say to myself, I want something new James Bond this week. Right. The 007 store is not my first port of call. I go to eBay and I'll mm-hmm. look for old vintage books. And honestly, you can get the pan books for about two quid on right. eBay. And you can get them so sort of like, it. 
and and you know, it, it just fe- there's just something that feels a little more more, more substantial about buying something older. Do you, do you know what else you can get for good value on eBay right now? James Bond Junior action figures. <gasps> <laughs> it's like collect them now because that shit's going to be popular again when Amazon relaunches that series. Yes. Yep. <laughs> can I can I bring up one last thing? I think because yes. um, and and this is really more for for Calvin, I guess. Um, the relaunch of uh, Goldeneye. Um, Ah, I can't believe I forgot it. Well, I mean, alleged relaunch of Golden. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, because I couldn't possibly relaunch. comment on the actual date. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I was it was a Nintendo Direct uh, very recently that I was watching and just waiting mm. for. Like, are they going to announce it? Are they going to announce it? They didn't. But yes, maybe mm. that uh, announcement would come through. Double O Seven accounts, I guess. I I don't really know, but um, yes, this has been heavily oh, rumored Xbox. now for. A, Mm, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you a question, Calvin. Mm. What, like, because um, I'm a, I, I love GoldenEye 64. I think it's one of my favorite games, but um, semi recently, within the last couple of years or something, I, I played it again uh, with literally a friend of mine kind of, we dug it out of the basement, you know, the, the console out of the basement, blew the dust off the cartridge kind of thing. Um, mm. It was not quite as I remembered it. <laughs> um, what what would you, as a, a you know, as a more kind of a modern gamer, what do you what would you be looking for from this release, and what are you hoping that you know you're going to be seeing? Mm. Um, I oof. I mean, I, for me personally, it is like heavy nostalgia sort of uh, vibes. I do play it on emul on an emulator um so i have i do it, it's one of my kind of pick up and play kind of things which is what i really mm-hmm. like about i can just pick it up for like half an hour play it shut it down and the, and i i play it mainly for for those kinds of purposes um i think what i think i know we still don't know if it's going to be coming out on xbox or on uh, the nintendo mm-hmm. switch and there are obviously rights issues involved with these kinds of things um I if I were to hazard a guess, I think that the Nintendo Switch will likely get a straight up port of it um uploaded mm. to the N64 services, so um it'll just be a straight port of the N64 game. I would okay. imagine that the Xbox version would get the full on uh remaster that was developed years ago and leaked. I think it was last year, wasn't it? Um yeah, it's and great then maybe day, there will one. be You what sorry? That was a great day. <laughs> I, I I don't see why they wouldn't release that on Xbox, and maybe that will have more bells and whistles on it, mm-hmm. um, online multiplayer, perhaps that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I I I think that maybe that would be the more definitive re-release of the game, and I'd have to heavily consider buying my first ever Xbox to play it, mm, uh, depending it. on <laughs> depending on what or if Nintendo get any kind of version of it. Um, mm. Given that it was Nintendo requesting that the game be unbanned in Germany, I would have thought that that would bode that they would have some kind of involvement. And yeah. Banjo Kazooie, which was developed by Rare, is on the yeah. N64 service on the Switch now, so it feels like they yeah. are, you know, on good terms. Yeah, there's there's been some kind of backroom deal, right, between Microsoft and Nintendo. 
Well, it, it yeah. seems Microsoft it seems. have um, very recently. Xbox have been they bought was it Activision Blizzard, and they've been very vocal over the past couple of weeks to say that Activision Blizzard titles will still be available on other consoles. So yeah. they're kind mm. of open, I guess, yeah. to the idea of sharing. Well, you know, and also they like money. Yes, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but I, I do get. I, I agree with you, Calvin. I think the the N sixty the Switch is just going to be the the N sixty four original. Um, the the only thing I'd say that they really need to um, address is the control schema, because mm. anybody that's played a game the last ten years is going to get lost real quick. Because <laughs> <laughs> Goldeneye came out in that we don't know how to do a control scheme for a three D game era, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the early Bond games, Tomorrow Never Dies, all the way through. I mean, even even Agent Under Fire, the control schemas are a little bit wonky by modern standards. Mm. And if they just remap that and fix it, so it's a bit more pick up and play for people. Um, d- yeah, that was, that was my experience when I got the 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 emulate the the remaster last year. Was I, I got an Xbox controller on the PC, and I was like, uh, "This is weird." Yeah, because you're not <laughs> holding it like you know that, that there is something very visceral about that uh, dual stick N64. Yeah controller you know and and it it isn't just the experience of playing the game it's it's how you're playing it what you're playing it with right you know those shoulder buttons that chunky shoulder button and the and the little you know central the trigger yeah yeah, and the trigger i mean it's basically it's so set up for it um you know maybe uh, they'll bring out a controller a very sensible thing to do because i think that there is a genuine connection i don't know how many literal days of my life have been lost to perfect dark and and golden eye mm. um deep 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 dives into those those games right. and you know especially uh, like uh, i think i've uh, i think i unlocked all but one of the unlocks and that's that takes a lot of doing <laughs> um mm. and so you know it's kind of yeah, and that's another thing too. Like, uh, well, if it's a direct port over, are all those kind of um, you know cheats going to be uh, unlockable? And how are they going to work? Oh, and- if it's just well, the way that the Nintendo Switch N sixty four games are, it's the original ROM. It's just they right. tweak the emulator, so okay. they should all be in place. Yeah, okay, that'll be and interesting. They did release a um, an N sixty four controller for the nintendo switch you have to have the uh expanded Mm. uh uh, whatever membership uh to be able to order it i think last time i looked they were still sold out they sold out very quickly um but yeah Yeah. i i I will be hopefully getting one of those if uh, it does come to this so will all of the all of the stuff that was on so you know a lot of i mean i'm not uh you know a, a uh, exactly super au fait with with this but i know that there is a lot of environments that were mapped and in the game that you, you just can't access mm-hmm. right right uh, particularly on the dam level you could get all the way out to that little island um yeah. i'm sure there are other kind of uh you know hidden elements um so if it's a direct port of, of that all of that stuff should still also all be the mystique there. will be there yeah yeah, so you could technically say you could unlock it, really, couldn't you? And yeah. you could I do remember when, um, 
Activision brought out the the GoldenEye Reloaded on the Wii. The Wii. That they brought out a golden controller for it. Uh-huh. I've got you it. Just that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so it's like I could totally see them branding the controller as a way of upselling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm actually looking at the box right now through my bookshelf. Yeah. Um, so it, that seems like a missed opportunity otherwise to have a 007 branded controller or a GoldenEye mm. branded controller. Yeah, I can't believe we left that one to last. That was like the thing I was looking forward to the most this year. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if not, not, not to unnecessarily elongate this if no one's interested, but because uh, this was like a news roundup, I thought we might talk about Oscars or uh, you know awards stuff. No time to die. But if no one's oh, interested, because yes, right, I can't it. say that I yeah, am terribly. <laughs> well, okay. It was mixed. Uh, the reaction was. Uh, sorry, reaction I, was I, I am interested. Yeah, the reaction was mixed online, wasn't it? Yeah. To the Oscars. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of very over the Oscars. I think uh, you know the very fact that they aren't, aren't requiring masks or whatever it is, and or or uh, you know it, uh, and also to like to snub like like there's very few women again nominated um, and or uh, successful but, films. Yeah, and and then and then to like not have production design or cinematography for no time to die seems insane to me. Yeah. My theory on the Oscars has always been this dude, which is um, the majority of the voting on the Academy is Hollywood based. Right. Yes. Mm. There's, yes. There's international people in the Academy and stuff, but the vast majority of the people live within 30, the, 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 the TMZ, right. The 30 mile right. zone. Um. I think they treat films made in the UK and elsewhere the second class because they're not buddies with the people who made them. They're not right. friends with them. They're not in their circles. It's not part of the machinery of Hollywood. Right. And I think that's why Bond typically gets snubbed. It's, it's, um, it's interesting you say that because Belfast has done very well in these Oscar nominations. I mean, I mean like over 60 years, it's mm-hmm. like, it's almost handicapped because they're made, they're not made of the, as part of the Hollywood machine. Yeah. Right, right. They they've been this successful franchise that have said no thanks. We'll just do it ourselves. Yeah, I get that. Well, well also, and the people that work on them don't work in that machinery of right. Hollywood. And I, and I also feel as though it is designed. This is my reading of them. It is designed to recognize more independent based films rather than mainstream films. And I've always found it really frustrating that you have dramatic performances that get pivoted forward. And I'm not saying that these performances are not good, but it's so much easier to make people cry than it is to make people laugh and that it is to make sure that people are entertained watching a film. And I don't think there's enough recognition for the different types of performances that exist, mm. the different genres that are actually there. And so instead mm. of recognizing any sort of performance or technical sides of Bond, they did the typical thing that they do and said, well, okay, well, you get the music. Right. Like that's the thing that we can recognize and we will continue to recognize with, you know, a couple technical things here and there, but nothing substantial. And I don't think that that is going to change. And it's probably one of the reasons why, as somebody who watches just a lot of mainstream films, I rarely know the films that are being nominated. I've never seen the performances that have been given. I've always felt that it has been this sort of industry self-congratulation that happens. But as as Ben has noted, 
I think a lot of people are starting to question who gets congratulated. Why is it that the biggest awards, um, certain groups of people like women and, and communities of color, they tend to be overlooked. And it is this replication um, that happens time and time again. And I think it's really troubling. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a turnoff for me, because this could bring so much recognition to some of the great work that's being really being done out there, but only some are being recognized due to campaigns and who you know and a whole bunch of stuff that happens um, with this award circuit. And sometimes the best actors and the best creators are not nominated and they don't win. Mm-hmm. I, I quite agree with you there, Lisa. And I think particularly uh, when, when you said about it being, you know, it's, it's an industry congratulating itself and, it, you know, um, Bond, Bond films don't need them anyway. Uh, I know that they launched <laughs> quite a, you know, a campaign to be recognized and stuff. And, you know, that PR blitz is is uh, probably a validating thing for the filmmakers in in themselves to even be sort of considered for these sorts of things to be on long lists and whatnot. Um, and still, you know, it, it got, uh, three Oscar nominations, which I think is the par or just below what the I think Skyfall has the most. I can't see. I can't even remember like which one. No one's favorite Bond film is the Bond film that got the most. You know because it got the most Oscars. You know so it's it, I mean, it. Hopefully you know it'll do well for the people that were involved. Who knows? But James, I thought you tweeted something um, that that uh, really resonated with me when you made the oh, point about okay. for all of the kind of save cinema mm. language of the last year for mm. Bond and Spider Man, which are two of the you know yeah. biggest. Yeah. <laughs> blockbusters in the past year to not get any kind of you know more substantial recognition that in the awards was really telling i think i i I don't know if like the academy's on some kind of like seppuku pact or something because like they for the last two years they've been saying we've got to get cinemas open because our whole industry and all these rich people are going to be out of work um and what a what a crime it is that we have to close the cinemas and all the rest of it and we don't care about your health and all the rest of it and then to nominate the majority of the awards to films that went either streaming or day and date streaming. Mm. Yep. Beggars belief. I thought they would be like punishing these films for doing that. And then they mm. went the other way. And then the ones that actually kept the cinemas open or reopened the cinemas or made them profitable again, no soup for you. Mm. <laughs> it's going to be fascinating seeing. Very important kind of, point. It's going to be really interesting to see how the whole kind of awards you know, industry, because it is an industry in itself, kind of reacts to the whole sort of shift to streaming as opposed to, you know, theatrical. As Because it is just, you know, it's difficult to get these smaller budget kind of films. I know Belfast has had a cinema release. Uh, I don't know if Don't Look Up did. I was amazed to see that in there, because I was like, God, I watched that on Netflix. That's a Netflix film, isn't it? But, it, it, it you did. know, these kind ca- Sorry. Right. It, 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 yeah. yeah. The, these kinds of films that don't have as big, wide releases and aren't probably uh i think did that macbeth film the apple macbeth film also get nominated it's uh these kinds of films are going to have limited you know cinema releases probably but not the wide releases that blockbuster kind of cinema gets so i i'm going to be fascinated to see if you know if and how the awards kind of react to to that really when they don't have that you know go to the cinema and see them prestige that they maybe once did I, th- I think it's interesting. So the Oscars, the, I think the way they work is that they has to have been some kind of limited cinema release somewhere. Yeah. But whether that's um, a case of you yeah. just put it on in five cinemas 
and put it on for two days yeah, and literally it's done counts. And gone. yeah, yeah. um yeah. i i so I, I do follow the oscars but more from a case of it's more of a fun guessing game and it's everything you guys have said is spot on because it's interesting that everyone i speak to about the oscars when you're sort of picking what's going to happen in what categories you pick your pick and then you pick what the academy is going to pick and they very rarely <laughs> line up <laughs> right so it, it, it is interesting i, I, I think the I, three no time sorry go ahead I was going to say on, on that on that randomness, Sean, is that not a lot of people know this, is that for the big categories like best film, they don't count all the votes. Mm-hmm. They randomly select ballots to count so that they can, so it's not necessarily guaranteed that the one who got the most votes from the Academy wins. Mm-hmm. How is that even okay? It's like a bit it's like a US election. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> now I'm mad. And I don't even like it's the true. Oscars. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. But I think, James, wow. just to throw it out there, I know you said this and I'm just going <laughs> to echo it. There was such rhetoric about the importance of keeping cinemas open. And you had this moment to recognize the films that actually did that and the patrons who went and saw these films and who sort of leaned in and bought into this idea. And then you turn around and you snub them. And yeah, I think so for me, it, it's it, shocking. It, it exposes that it was never about that, was it? Nope. Mm. It was just rhetoric. Didn't Eon really push this, this season as well for the Oscars? Um, mm-hmm. I've never seen a campaign so uh, well-organized, budgeted, um, just everywhere, it's been a huge push. I wonder how much of that was like part of Craig's deal to come back that they were already going to push it. Mm. Um, and I think we wrote about this. I think Eon's theory was, well, Lord of the Rings <laughs> didn't yeah. really get much. But when the last one came out, it was like, well, this is the last time we get to vote for it. Let's all give them all the awards. Mm. I think that was their theory that because it was like Craig's last one, it was kind of like the makeup award movie. Um where people would just like kind of add up all of his work and call it on this one. Right. But it didn't, didn't, didn't wow. come on. It's a, and how much do you said it costs money? Like this was oh, budgeted. How much yeah. does it cost for one of these things? Shitloads. I mean, it's, it's print, it's print, it's print ads. It's scheduled. You, you know, they got, what was his name? Uh, Del Toro, the director to interview them. I mean, like he doesn't do that for free. Right. Mm. Yeah. The, the the best um this is a bit off topic but the best oscar nomination campaign i've ever seen is um and look it up if you've never seen it is uh, david lynch trying to get laura dern nominated for an oscar and he went and sat somewhere i don't know if it was somewhere in los angeles outside with a cow just to attract attention <laughs> just so that he could tell people that laura dern deserved an oscar that's um that's pretty good it's probably cheaper than most so, campaigns <clears throat> So what do we think? I think they're going to get best song because if if God if Sam Smith can win it, uh, um, I'm I'm skeptical here. I'm skeptical about whether it'll get any of them. To be honest, I think they're very well deserved nominations, and I think some of them it do, mm-hmm. definitely that definitely does deserve. Um, but the competition they're up against is a bit stiff. Um, sound and visual effects, while they're both, I think they both rightfully belong in those categories. They're up against June, which was really phenomenal in both sound and the visual effects department. So that will be a really, really tough one. And in terms of there's already a preemptive hate campaign on Dune within Bond fans. Yeah, it's such a shame. Mm -hmm. It's such a good movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, and in terms of song, I'd love for it to get it, and I think 
there'd be a lo- there'd be a lovely through line if Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die all got best song. And in my opinion, No Time to Die is the best of the three. Mm-hmm. However, I do I think the favorite and I'd say the most likely to get it at the moment is um, Encanto. Right. No. I, I agree maybe. with that. I, I think if this had been two years ago, when mm-hmm. or what, last year or whenever the film would have been eligible, when it had been um, released originally, it, it would have right. got it easily. I think Billie Eilish was particularly at a bit of a peak then mm-hmm. as well. And now I just mm-hmm. feel like it's just been out for so long. Uh, right. What is it? It's two, two years, years now. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. And, and Encanto is experiencing the song that is submitted for Encanto is not one of the ones doing terribly well in the charts, but it's just the, the buzz around that film at the moment and the music, I think, might sway some of the voters. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame. Is, is, is the upside to Billie Eilish not getting it against the odds compared to, like, Sam Smith? A reason to maybe <laughs> rethink who they get for the title songs? Hmm. Like, are we going to scrap this ballad thing and just go get a rock band for a change again? You know, I hope so. Why not? I, d- I, d- mm-hmm. I would love that, but also mm-hmm. the song did do well last year because didn't it? Did it win a Brit or a Grammy as well? Am I making that it's up? One of a few one things, of, I, I think. Really, yeah, no, it won a Grammy. Really <laughs> it actually, I don't think it will win, but I think it deserves to win. And, mm-hmm. and, and I imagine it. It charted well, didn't it? So it would have brought in a lot of revenue in that sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it, it did its job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would have done its job better if the film had come out in 2019, right? But um, I, I just think they were like, when, when, they were, when they decided on Billie Eilish's song, I think they were just like, well, this will get us an Oscar. Mm. <clears throat> and if that's off the table now, then maybe we'll get a, a more interesting choice next time. I don't know. I, I, I don't believe I'm saying that Billie Eilish wasn't an interesting choice because God, I remember the day we announced that it was like we had to explain who she yeah. was to people. Oh, you see, I think it was a brilliant <laughs> choice because there's lots of people who are from my generation who aren't Bond fans but were Billie Eilish fans, and when it came, the song came out, and they were like, "Yeah, I'm going to go see the movie because I'm a Billie Eilish fan." Right. Mm. Um. So I don't know. I I don't think she was the obvious choice, and in a sense. I think they should stick to that and do like you're saying and go for something rock or something and don't go for the obvious choice again and mm. Mm. do something out there. Don't go for another battle. I think they're going to CGI Kurt Cobain. Like <laughs> <laughs> they did with Mark Hamill. And it's just going to be a, it, it's going to be a fake Nirvana track. <laughs> uh, so your prediction, Sean, is, um, they're not going to get any. Uh, that's my prediction. I would love it too, and I think they do deserve. Uh, they deserve two out of three of them. I think visual effects, yeah, is is wonderful, but they've I, just but got I, such I can, steep I, competition. Yeah, yeah, mm. you're right. And um, but the the thing that maybe it's got going for it is that because the Academy usually looks down on part one movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Dune being half a film may count against it. Mm. I don't know. I, um, I think. I think. It, isn't it a weird world that we live in, where on your bookshelf it's going to be Spectre, Academy Award-winning film, No Time to Die, eh. <laughs> somewhere on there, Suicide Squad is there as Academy Award-winning film, right? <laughs> and coming to America. <laughs> um, I, I, 
what might work in its favor in that i guess kind of no time to die is kind of a in in the world of movie politics you could kind of say it's a bit of a politically neutral choice because you're not going for uh you're not then sort of voting for one of the because all the other all the other films in all the other categories have a lot of nominations in other categories as well right so right it, right it kind of makes it an easier choice and you're not favoriting anyone so maybe it has that going for it but mm. personally no I don't, I don't think it's gonna get anything which is a shame it really is a shame and i really wish it had been nominated for cinematography and like you said yes. production design because it really did yes. deserve a shout for both those it did mm. it did um but again when you when you see how much visual effects work was done the production design it's it's not all production design. Well, maybe that's, that has something else going for it then, is that the visual effects were just so seamless and there are a lot of visual effects in there that we haven't yeah. even noticed. Does that, yeah, make, did you know, does that make it a good visual know, effect? Did you know Paloma's legs weren't real when she kicks people? What? Yeah, they were CGI replacements. But what did they do with the rest of her body? <laughs> well, they kept the body, but they airbrushed her legs out, and then they did CGI legs for when she kicks oh, people in the face. But why? She did all Jeez. that training. Because the kicks didn't connect, and she was wearing sneakers. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah, that makes sense. Did, yeah. uh, did they CGI some gloves in as well? Or <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that we'll never find out, because nobody wants to admit it. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, Maybe we'll have a post Oscars mini app when, um, either way, right? <laughs> Whichever happens. Because <laughs> we got BAFTAs as well, right? Before the um, mm. Oscars to see how things go. Mm. Um, and in No Time Today is in the best British film category. And I was frankly shocked there was 10 uh, last year. Um, mm. So we'll see if the BAFTAs are a bit more populist than the Oscars. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not holding that much hope. So, thank you, Sean, Calvin, Dr. Lisa, and Ben. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.